Hardy's signature Frisco burger and Frisco breakfast sandwich are the kind of goodness people drive across town for. Classic favorites on a toasted sourdough bun. Only at Hardy's. Goodness in the making. Participation may vary. Impact of Influence. The tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. So we finished recording the episode you're about to hear, which is a good one, I believe. And then we got some important news or a source told us some things. And Seton, what is it? Yeah, so a source contacted me and said that the securing of the crime scene at Moselle the night of the murders is about to become an issue. And this isn't entirely surprising to me because when we talked to John Marvin, he mentioned that the family was allowed to go back into the house. Yes, we did get into details about that. And we talked to, I believe we talked to the former FBI agent about that. And he thought it was kind of odd. Right. And I think that this is about to become a big issue in the case. Now let's uh, move on to the episode. Hello, friend. Always uh, grateful that you're joining us and spending time with us, Matt Harris, Seton Tucker, Murdoch Podcast, MurdochPodcast.com, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. We get, we get lots of great feedback. And even the feedback that's not positive, we take and and try to make the show better for you. Um, Seton, as we were sitting down to do this podcast episode, things started breaking in in a search. So we were recording yesterday, as this is you're hearing this. We came back in because we wanted to see what would shake out in a search that was reported. Explain what's going on. So yesterday, August 30th, Michael DeWitt, a Hampton local and reporter with the Hampton Guardian, posted on his Facebook page that sled was near Almeda searching a river with metal detectors and that they also had boats and divers in the water. Shortly after that, Will Folks with Fitz News reported that the search was tied to the double homicide investigation. So at the hearing on Monday, August 29th, Dick Carpetlian indicated that the state was still investigating and that they possibly didn't have enough evidence to convict Murdoch. So before we talk about this, let's listen to the clip from the hearing on Monday. One other thing I'd like to say is this. They charged him with murder. What they're telling us today is they're still investigating it. They're still investigating the murder they've charged him with. They didn't have enough when they charged him. Well, that just, to me, is theatrics. Because I would assume that you're always investigating right to the bitter end. We're not even into the trial yet. And you don't need as much information to get an indictment from a grand jury than you do to get a conviction. So I think Dick Harputlian is just posturing for future jury members and for media and the like because the... Prosecution does not have to have everything finished. Their case tied up right now. They can continue to investigate. That statement leads you to think that maybe Harputlian knew about what was going to happen the other day. Well, it also makes me wonder about, is someone talking to law enforcement? Is someone making a deal that why now, a year later, are they searching this river? Because it's a very specific place and the area down there, which we've been to multiple times, very, very rural. There are plenty of 
wooded areas. There are plenty of swampy areas. There are plenty of rivers and streams and whatnot that you could dispose of a gun. Right. So obviously they have metal detectors out there. It, most likely they're searching for some sort of weapon. We want to examine now a little bit more into the search that was going on. And uh, that brings us back to our pal. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you? Good. Sarah is a native of, are you Hampton? Are you native of Hampton? Yes. Okay. And she, we've, we've had her on before talking about the history of the area and the history of the Murdoch family. She knows. The history of banking. Yep. Banking. Did the banking thing. Just, just amazing history of the area, whether you're involved with Murdoch or not, just the all the things that have gone on in uh, that area of the Low Country. So, Cian, do you want us to start us off with Sarah? Yeah, let's talk about the location of the search. Can you describe this and tell us a little bit about the area? Yeah, so Hampton is the is the county, but it's also the town seat, the town of Hampton, and then the next town over is Varnville. Just a few miles out of Varnville, traveling toward Yemassee, is a a Y intersection, and that's called Almeida. And Ellick's parents, uh, Mr. Randolph and Miss Libby, have a house right at that Y. If you stay straight on that road, it's Highway 63 that takes you to Yemassee. If you curve around to the right, it's 278, which goes to, to Grays and then Ridgeland. So this is on the Grays Ridgeland path. It is less than two and a half miles from Mr. Randolph and Miss Libby's house. Um, and it is a fairly substantial body of water. There's, um, it's large enough that there are two bridges that cover it. And those two bridges are about 350 yards apart. The, the first bridge is about 95 feet wide at the road. The second one's about 250 feet wide. And they cover the Coosahatchee River. The Coosahatchee is about 50 miles long. It starts in Allendale and runs to Beaufort. And in Beaufort, it joins up with the Pocataligo River to form the Broad River. And then the Broad River joins the Chichesse River and the Beaufort River to form the Port Royal Sound, which empties into the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, let me ask you this before we uh, dash on there. Okay, so to get this straight to everybody, you have... The, the area we're talking about, you'll hear, is Moselle. That is where the murders occurred. That is the, the Murdoch, the Alec Murdoch family home, basically, and, and hunting area. And then, which is approximately 14 miles away from this search location. And we keep saying this Almeida place, but you're saying that's just kind of an intersection. It's not really like a town. It, it is actually marked on the map, but it's not a town. Okay. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's a location. So I'm looking at a map, and you can do this at home if you want to pull up a, a map of that area. Okay, so Moselle to Varnville is where Alec is alleged to have gone, or there's people even say it, Moselle, where we Varnville, where uh, Alec's mom was living. And Correct. so you're driving from Moselle to Varnville. This Almeida place doesn't look like, unless I'm looking at something wrong, doesn't look like it's on the way. On the way to Like to if where? you drove straight from Moselle to Varnville. Yes. Do, do you pass Almeida? No, no, you That's go I mean. through Varnville, yeah. and Almeida is about three or four miles out of town. It would make sense if, if he did it, if Alec had a gun, 
he would do it somewhere between Moselle and Barnville. He wouldn't go past his mom's house necessarily. That would, yes, that would make sense because this area that they were searching is about two and a half miles. So he would have to overshoot mom and dad's house. GPS tracking with a phone or with a vehicle, you'd want to stay on your path and not leave your path. So he'd have to overshoot it by about two and a half miles to go and do that and then turn around and go back. Now we're not ruling off, ruling out that he would do it. He was, if if he did, he he wasn't in a clear mind, but we're saying this is not a direct thing. He had to go past mom's house. No. And in fact, if you, if you check your map, when you leave Moselle to go to, to mom and dad's house, you would normally go down Saucahatchee road. However, if you stay on Moselle road, it'll bring you directly into a little community called Islandton. And if you were to take that path, it would not take you out of your way, and you will cross over two bridges that go over the Salkahatchee River, which uh-huh. is a larger river with a faster-moving current, which is it's going to produce more sediment, sediment and silt. If we're thinking like a killer, let's assume like, you know we're playing that game right now. You, he obviously knows the roadways and the byways and the highways and the waterways. So it would make most sense to go down the Moselle Road where you have multiple options of a faster river, the easier, better place to get rid of a gun. Yes, and okay. not deviate from your path. Okay, uh, that, that's really interesting information. And it's showing me, and we've always said that 17 to 20 minutes from Moselle to uh, Varnville. I think a good place to move on to right this this moment would be the divers you talked to. Yeah, so I do want to give a, a shout out to my former neighbor. His name is Ronald Fennell, and he actually did post yesterday on a couple of the media sites with some photos that he took. He is a diver, so he's familiar with the equipment and what they're doing. And he told me that when he went out there, there were approximately 10 vehicles, uh, mostly sled. South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, and about three or I think three, he said, highway patrol vehicles. So there were three vehicles that were the divers' vehicles on both of the bridges. They weren't searching just one. They were searching both of them. And then there were three more sled vehicles parked about 500 yards away at Pocatalago Road, which is the road that goes to the Sand Hill Church. So for you trivia folks out there, this was the church where they they filmed the funeral scene for the Big Chill. Okay, so that's Pocatalago Road. So the, the sled vehicles were parked there, and there were officers out in the woods searching. Oh, the woods, too. Okay, I heard were, that. Yeah, and then there were two more sled vehicles just past the bridges. The woods around there for the officers who were searching in the woods, this is all forested wetland. So depending on what the tide was like, it could be boggy and marshy or it could be solid ground. I I don't know what the conditions were right then. But interesting that they were also searching the woods. It's very interesting. And, you know, it was something that we had talked about for people that don't know that area, like, as well as you do, and we've just been a few times, but there are plenty of those kind of areas, right? There's plenty of swampy, there's plenty oh, of yes. woods, there's plenty of waterways. Yes. Plenty. And also, you know, it, interesting to point out that, yes, there are two bridges, and yes, they are 300 yards apart, but the water starts well before these bridges. So there is a lot of water there. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's important to know about the Coosahatchee is it is what they refer to as a, first of all, it's a uh, Blackwater River, which just means that 
the decaying plants and whatever, or they release these tannins that stain the water. Hmm. So it's, it's like black tea. Oh. And then the other part of it is it's a tidal river, which means it rises and, and falls with the tides. Hmm. So the water levels change. Being a, a kind of a swampy area, there are also trees growing up in the middle of it. So if you're doing a search, you've got logs, you've got branches, you've got root systems, You've got fallen branches, dead wood in there as well. So maybe they were searching because they thought with the tides that the gun or whatever they were searching for could have gone into these other areas. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The Coosahatchee has, uh, where it starts in Allendale, several other smaller bodies of water that feed into it, um, like Swallow Savannah and uh, Little Duck and, and those and and then it flows on, you know, towards Beaufort, where, you know, little creeks and, and things feed into it, and then it joins up with other bodies. So those tides, those levels, all of that changes, which can also produce silt and sediment and things like that. So you got anything with any weight to it, it can get covered up pretty easily. Were there any other insights from your diver friend? Yeah, so with him being a diver, um, he did tell me that he saw underwater metal detectors. He saw boats. He They sometimes use sonar, and I don't know if they were using it. He didn't see any kind of sonar, and I didn't see any reports of sonar. So we don't know if they were using that or not. But basically what they do is they set a fixed point in the water, and then they attach some type of rope or line to the diver and he goes in a circle around that fixed mm. point and then the circle gets bigger and bigger and with that being black water and and being you know there's clay trash foliage mm. silt you have to search by hand a lot of times the visibility is next to nothing so they do one pass where they search and then the backup diver does the exact same thing to okay. make sure that they don't miss anything. Hmm. You also got to remember you're dealing with the locals there, snapping turtles, snakes, alligators. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't sign me up for that job. Yeah, really. There's also been some speculation that they could have been searching for the gun from the murder suicide mess from last Labor Day. And when we talked, you said that this location would not make sense. This is strictly my opinion. Uh, that doesn't hold any water for me, pardon the pun, because Cousin Eddie is not a Hampton County boy. He's a Collinsy County boy. And if you're going to drive 14 miles, it would make a lot more sense to go to an area that you're familiar with. It would make a lot more sense to go to an area where if your GPS was being monitored, you could explain, because this is not an area that he frequents. The Edisto River Basin encompasses... 12 counties and is over 3,000 square miles. That water runs faster. It'd be well worth the drive, maybe 25 miles, to go to one of those outlets. Salkahatchee River encompasses seven counties in our area, and it flows into the Cumbahee River Basin, and its elevation is about 16 feet. So there's there's dump sites or there's access points in, in Miley. There are many other places. I mean, the Whippy Swamp is right there. There are many other places that he could have gone that would have made more sense where he could 
have some explanation as to why he was in that area. This area doesn't make any sense. The thing is, really, the, the Cousin Eddie gun Labor Day, that, that, that gun that was used for that, really isn't that vital to anything. It's because it's a handgun, right? And we're, we're assuming... And Alec, or whoever yeah, killed the, yes. the whoever did the double homicide, did not use a handgun. Well, and if no. the Fitz News report from yesterday is accurate, they're saying it's tied to the double homicide right. of Maggie and Paul. So even though this is another incident that Alec is involved in, that's not doesn't seem to be directly yeah. related to the murders of Maggie and Paul. But we thought we'd touch on it because we had read it in a few different places. Well, thank you, Sarah. This has been so informative, and as always, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. We'll uh, grab a margarita again sometime. Absolutely. (laughs) Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. It is always so informative when we have Sarah on. Probably my favorite guest. She she is cool. She uh, knows the history of that area so, so well. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name... Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Now we skip over to another big happening. There was a hearing where Dick Harpootlian, Alec Murdoch's defense attorney, and the prosecutor... Creighton Waters got a little heated, and to break it down for us is our legal analyst. He was a former prosecutor and a former defense attorney. He is John Snyder. Hello, John. Hello, everyone. John, yesterday I attended a hearing in Walterboro at the Culleton County Courthouse in front of Judge Newman. The hearing was to address a defense motion to compel and the state's motion for a protective order. Alec Murdoch did attend this hearing, and he looked gaunt and pale. He remained pretty expressionless the entire time. He was handcuffed and he had a chain around his waist. I didn't notice that at the last hearing I attended. Uh, The courtroom was basically empty other than the media, uh, which was kind of similar to his bond hearing. Uh, I did not see John Marvin, Randy, or Buster. They weren't in attendance. The first question was a listener question to you, John, is why was he allowed to wear regular clothing to this hearing? You are generally allowed in every court setting to wear your own clothes when you are appearing in front of a judge. And in a case like this where there is media and photographs being taken, you want your client to not look guilty. And so it's always better to have them dressed up than to have them wearing a, the jumpsuit. Well, what about the chain around his waist? Have you ever seen this before? Yeah, that's, that's common, and, and what that is is his handcuffs are chained through the, the waist belt, and that allows him to have freedom uh, to move and to write notes and to participate in his legal defense, but it also keeps him bound and from being a flight risk. Okay, so we're going to play a clip now, John, and uh, we can react to it afterward. As things got testy, between Alec Murdoch's attorney, Dick Harpootlian, and the prosecutor, Creighton Waters. Let's hit that clip. We're here for the state's motion for a protective order so that... Your Honor, we're not here for that. We're here for the defense motion to compel. And I object to the state trying to hijack this 
proceeding, uh, taking over and saying this is for their motion for protective order. We made a motion to compel weeks before they made their motion for protective order, and I'd ask the court to allow us to go forward with our motion to compel. Your Honor, uh, both motions are to be heard today, and I think that if the motion to, for protective order is addressed, it makes any motion to compel uh, moot. Because, of course, as the state has been clear from day one, we've been ready to provide this discovery, but because of the sensitivity of the matters here, uh, we think it's appropriate, out of an abundance of caution, to seek a reasonable and minimally intrusive protective order uh, so that the discovery can be provided. The second it's provided, there is no need for a motion to compel. Okay, John. take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in, and you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. So instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. And break that down for us, other than the snippiness, and was that unusual to see that kind of snippiness in court, and what are they arguing there? No, that gets, that gets this former litigator's heart a-pumping. Um, that is absolutely lawyering and part of the adversarial system that, that we have. So what you're hearing is Harpelian saying, hey, I filed a motion, I calendared this hearing, and I want my motion heard, and the state has come in and co-opted this hearing with their own motion, and I want my motion heard first and not the state's. And so the state is responding to say, if, if our motion is granted, once we provide the information that Harputlian is seeking to have be given to him, it'll be given to him, but under this order. And so that's good lawyering on both both sides but but what's what's happening is we are seeing you know Harpulian say i want this stuff and I, judge i want you to make them give it to me and the state in a, in a subtle way but directly is saying judge we'll provide it but we need this order in place before we do so and the order you're talking about is a protective order explain what a protective order is so a protective order is a a direction from the court telling the parties exactly how information is to be handled and what information is to be provided. And so you have the rules regarding discovery. You have, you have Supreme Court cases like Brady saying all exculpatory evidence has to be provided. But here the state is asking for 
some some material to be provided, but not all of it because of the sensitive nature of the material. And you can put a protective order only on some of the. It doesn't have to be everything, right? That you put on anything, yeah. Okay. So, and again, it may be that the state's best witness is one of the relatives, and the relatives aren't real crazy about having their their kin know that they're the reason they got indicted for murder. I will say, though, it is not the typical, it's rare to be seeking a protective order in how you handle discovery. The, the better course of action is to turn everything over and let all the sunlight in that you can on a case so that the defense lawyers can't say you're trying to hide something, which is exactly what Harpootlian is saying. Well, let's listen to another clip. We'll hear some more arguing. They talk about Brady, Rule 5. We filed this motion weeks after they failed to comply with Rule 5 and Brady. And to just ignore that, I think, does a disservice to this court and the criminal justice system. The only reason why that's you know, I'm not done. If I could be heard without being interrupted and hijacked hijacked by the, the state as they continue to try to hide the ball on this case, I'm sorry if I appear upset. But I can tell you that every time we turn around, they're trying to hide something. And if we could just have 15 minutes to address the court and call a witness, we could get to it. Your Honor, to set the table appropriately, I think the protective order, which is what started this whole issue, is the way to set the table. And I would point out that Mr. Harpootling stood up and interrupted me as I was trying to set that table. Wow, nasty. So we discussed in our last episode that four SLED officers were subpoenaed to attend the hearing. And... Dick Harpitlian in this clip was requesting to let them take the stand and Judge Newman denied this request. Why do you think this request was denied? In motions in the court, you typically do things through written submissions that the court can review and you don't let it become a fishing expedition for either side. And so That means he would have the opportunity to go on a fishing expedition by having a witness on the stand before the trial. And basically, like, he's engaging in discovery and getting information that he wouldn't get otherwise by having a live witness, whereas he could have affidavits and supporting documents in the hearing instead. How about you give us a quick uh, synopsis of what Rule 5 is that keeps being brought up? So Rule 5 is a rule that South Carolina enacted that puts a time limit and a time requirement on the prosecutor's office for turning over evidence. Harpulian's assertion is that the state is ignoring their legal obligation under Rule 5. They're ignoring their legal obligation under the Supreme Court, Brady, which requires exculpatory evidence to be turned over, and that as a result, they are harming Alex's ability to defend himself against these allegations. So basically what the judge is saying is that he wants to wait to the hearing to try the case, not try it now. That's exactly right. He, he, he doesn't want to open the door for direct examination of witnesses prior to the actual trial. Harpulian is very smart to want to do that because 
the more information that the defense has, the better they can defend their client. I have a quick question about the strategical moments of this heated back and forth and cutting each other off or say, uh, are some of these show for potential jurors or these uh, posturing for the judge to let them know how this is going to be? It is, it is a combination of, you know, there's, there's an old adage that you only get angry on purpose. <laughs> and so you have some righteous indignation that, that how dare the other side, you know, it's like Foghorn Leghorn <laughs> grabbing a glove and slapping somebody in the face and saying, you, you've offended my manhood. And that, that, that is... That is very common among okay. lawyers, and and then when you put it into a potential death penalty case, it heats up even more. The yeah. judge will let us all know pretty early what he thinks of all that. And so when he rules, he may get tired of it and say, you boys need to go to a sandbox and, and deal with this like the toddlers you're acting like. <laughs> I, and, and again, in, in the heat of the battle, you are going to, to puff up on purpose. You are going to show your client how passionate you are, or you just might like to see the other side lose their brain, and so you poke <laughs> and prod them. There's there's nothing more fun than watching the other side lose their head because you <laughs> push them in a corner from poking at them and and that's you're seeing a little bit of that here. The the only danger with that is you have to be really careful once you're in trial that you don't lose the jury from acting like that. Well, let's listen to the next clip and hear what Judge Newman had to say. Lawyers, if you will be seated, and I'll not have both counsel arguing with each other and not to the court. <laughs> so that's what you said, John. Eventually, the judge is going to say, like, okay, sandbox for the, both of you. Let's move on to Creighton Waters talking about the leaks of information rumor and a little name-calling that was done by the defense team. He's worked with me on a number of cases and knows I don't play fast in this. They put that in their motion. Knows that I'm not responsible for any leaks. They put that in that motion. They will get everything, okay? I don't play fast and loose with discovery. I would rather give them everything because I don't want to be down the line, you know, with anything that I had that they could potentially have found useful. That's something that you mentioned in our previous episode, how the prosecutor doesn't want to try a case then have to do it again because of some, for lack of a better term, technicality. Is that correct? That's right. There is nothing worse than you putting your heart, soul, and mind into a case, and then because you didn't turn over everything that you, you needed to, a conviction gets undone. And so the, the, the best course of action for any prosecutor is to turn over everything, and even anything that they think might be useful for the other side so that they can have a complete and total verdict, and they don't have to worry about coming back again and retrying a case. But to be fair, uh, there are have been prosecutors who have done just that. They're not all perfectly upstanding 
attorneys. I, I will take a um, take a brave, bold stand here. Ninety nine point nine percent of all the prosecutors in the country do the right thing. The ones that we make podcasts about and we get to see TV shows on are the exception. And and those exceptions are are gross miscarriages of justice and people that are wrongfully convicted or are not given the information they need to defend themselves, they are entitled and and it is perfectly acceptable to demand justice for them. That being said, that's not the rule. That is the exception. Well, I think we should talk about the leaks. Dick Carputlian in this hearing says that he trusts Mr. Waters, but he doesn't trust his office. And Waters says that the leaks didn't come from him, their office. They may have come from witnesses because witnesses aren't sworn to secrecy as investigators are. Do you have any thoughts about where these leaks may have come from? I think that's exactly it. You have folks that have an ethical and legal obligation not to share anything about what's happening. But that doesn't mean that somebody that they talked to didn't talk to somebody else that talked to somebody. And that's how this information's coming out. And there's not a thing that Harputlian can do. There's not a thing the state can do. Honestly, there's not even a thing the court can do to prevent information from getting out from non-subpoenaed, non-oath-taking parties. Uh, now, the next clip is Creighton Waters talking about the worth of some of this uh, evidence and some of this discovery that's going to be turned over. And as soon as we can get a ruling on the protective order, because of the extreme sensitivity of this information, uh, you know, this information, Your Honor, is probably worth six to seven figures. I am not at all, and I put this in my motion despite their recent response, at all worried about Dick Arputlian or Jim Griffin selling this information. I'm not at all worried about that. But the problem is, is that inevitably a number of people, as the case is prepared, have to get access to that information. And the whole point is to have this not fall in the the wrong hands. This case is unique, it's unprecedented in South Carolina history. And as much as it combines violent crime with uh, alleged corruption of someone's law license on a, on a scale that's never been seen before. And, Your Honor, if, if not this case, what case would a protective order be appropriate with the intense media interest that there's there? So, John, what do you think about his theory there? And is it unfair to treat a defendant differently just because the case is getting attention? So, my, my question I would have here, and maybe it's the judge, is to be, why, if, if you can't turn it over in this case, how can you turn it over in any case? And so mm-hmm. if, you're, if your information handling system is so bad that you need help through a protective order, maybe you guys aren't doing it right. Mm-hmm. Might be my position as a judge. Now, I, I agree with their, you know, the comment on the sensitivity of the material, but I just don't think that you bad, you know, hard cases make bad law, and I don't really support any deviation from standard practices in a criminal case because it's treating it's treating this guy special 
when no one else is being treated as special in South Carolina and how cases go. They think it's special because somebody would be more likely to steal this stuff and sell it to somewhere for a million bucks. But that isn't the defendant's worry. Well, it's, it's, it's the defendant. So this is a great thing. If the defendant is worried about it, the defendant would file a protective order. So during the hearing, there was a lot of discussion about Alec's ability to review the evidence that they have against him. So let's listen to this next clip and hear what his lawyers have to say. But I can tell you, Your Honor, that the Alvin S. Glenn Detention Center no longer houses federal inmates because they had a problem making uh, their clients accessible to the federal public defender's office. And every, as my understanding, every federal defendant has been, the pretrial detainee has been removed from the Alvin S. Glenn Detention Center. I think they moved them down to Bamberg because the visitation is so restrictive there. They have gotten better, but it's still one hour at a time, and, and you're in a room with, with other lawyers. You're, you're in a pod, open pod, with other lawyers and get an hour at a time. And, and there's, there's a bulk of information that, that Mr. Murdoch, who is a lawyer, who can help us if he has time to review it in his cell, that we would certainly not give. He doesn't want to see crime scene photos, Your Honor. That's the last thing in the world he wants to see. But he needs to assist us in the defense of his case. And the conditions at the Alvin S. Glenn Detention Center are not conducive to that. If we have to meet with him for one hour to, to look at some discovery and then wait, you have to give 48 hours notice to schedule an appointment. And it's just not conducive to that. Thank you. Your Honor. First of all, he was a lawyer. Uh, secondly, uh, the fact that he's an Algernon Glenn, while that might provide some complication, it's not the state's fault. That's his fault. And that's on him. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, okay, so this is, I'm trying to figure out the deal here, because let's assume he, they keep mentioning that he was an, is an attorney, and they correct it and say was. How does that differ than anyone else who might be in jail and wants to see their evidence. Is it even important to their pitch? I, I do think that is important to their pitch. If there is any impediment to someone receiving a fair trial, it should be removed. And so what our in here is saying the policies and procedures that they have for handling lawyer visits is inadequate for him to be properly represented and he needs to be moved, I would argue that's right and every inmate at the facility should have somebody advocating for them like Harputlian and Griffin are for their client. Right, so if he doesn't have to be an ex-attorney or an attorney, if you're just arrested, you get to see all your stuff. I mean, if you're, I mean, if you're charged and indicted and all that stuff, you can see your stuff. Absolutely, and if... And Here's another bold statement of mine today. <laughs> if, your, if your case is so good, why not turn over everything? Well, the judge seemed to agree with the prosecution and granted a temporary protection order. The judge also ordered the prosecution to immediately turn over evidence to the defense. So, John, tell us what you think the next steps will be. The order will get written, hopefully without anybody leaking it or providing the information before the protective order is in place. That protective order will have specific instruction to the state 
and and the defense counsel so to the state it'll be how to provide and to the defense counsel it'll be to how to handle the information once once it is given to them and then all of that will hopefully resolve Harpootlian's concerns about not having what he needs to defend Alec properly. Before you go, an email I got, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com from Jeff in Virginia. John Snyder be a fun guy to drink a beer with. He cracked me up with his casual use of hookers in an example of a recent episode. That guy needs a paycheck and a promotion. Bravo! Then somebody else said, I can't yep. believe he said hookers. You're supposed <laughs> and, to use the term sex workers. That's the I guess the correct term. Thank you, John. Thanks, guys. Later. Bye. Bye. And on August 31st, two days after the hearing we just chatted about, there is a statement released by Alex's attorneys, uh, Griffin and Harputlian, which says, Yesterday late afternoon, the defense team for Alec Murdoch received an order issued by Judge Clifton Newman compelling the state to comply with their discovery requirements and make those materials available to us immediately. While some of the materials are to be temporarily under a protective order, the prosecuting attorney told our team last night we should receive materials early this morning. We look forward to reviewing the state's materials and allegations immediately so we can continue to build a defense for our client so we're ready for trial in less than six months. There you go. That's it. That's a wrap. Murdoch Podcast, Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. Talk later. <laughs> Join Hala Taha for actionable advice from the brightest minds in the world on the Young and Profiting Podcast. Author and academic Arthur Brooks on what success isn't. The husband was confessing to his wife that he might as well be dead. And I'm thinking, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? I turn around to get a look and it turns out to be one of the most famous men in the world. The world tells you that if you are profiting, money, power, pleasure, fame, you're going to be happy. And that's a bogus formula. The Young and Profiting Podcast, wherever you listen. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com.